If you've noticed in the news this week, there's been a lot of controversy about uh, civil disobedience. Uh, some of my friends uh, on Facebook are arguing back and forth uh, regarding Kim Davis, the county clerk uh, there in Rowan County, Kentucky, uh, whether she's an anarchist and needs to do her job, uh, whether she should resign, or whether we should stand with her uh, in a desire uh, to obey God rather than man. And so I'd like you to look with me, please, in Acts chapters 3, 4, and 5, and it will take us uh, two messages to get uh, through this whole section. So we'll look at a portion this morning and again a portion uh, tonight uh, as Peter and John, apostles of Jesus Christ, uh, are working out in their ministry of proclaiming Jesus the extent to which they will exercise civil disobedience. I'm reading from Acts chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. Now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the ninth hour, the hour of prayer. That'd be three in the afternoon. And a man who'd been lame from his mother's womb was being carried along, whom they used to set down every day at the gate of the temple, which is called Beautiful, in order to beg alms of those who were entering the temple. Many of us uh, see uh, homeless people on the streets around us. Uh, in fact, in the neighborhood in which I live in Buena Park, uh, there is a particular homeless man that has lived there for years now. Uh, his neighborhood, our neighborhood is his neighborhood. Uh, and he even has a name and uh, people feed him and care for him and, and uh, show mercy on him. And you will notice that Peter and John, as they see this lame man, do not avert their gaze, do not ignore his cries, but actually show kindness to him. Uh, Jesus had taught them regarding uh, the story of the Good Samaritan that it's hypocritical for religious leaders just to walk by a person who's in need uh, and to actually care about people. When Peter and John were about to go into the temple, he began asking to receive alms. That means he's begging, calling out for money. But Peter, along with John, fixed his gaze on him and said, look at us. One of my kids came home to tell me from, my kids are mostly grown now, uh, the youngest is 18, but coming home from kindergarten, one of my kids was saying that the teacher taught us uh, how to pay attention. She goes around with her, eye, her hands like this, and then as soon as our eyes look at her fingers, she goes, look me in the eye. And he said, look at us. And he began to give them his attention, expecting to receive from them. But Peter said, I don't possess silver and gold, but what I do have, I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ, the Nazarene, walk. Perhaps we've just read past the idea of this being a lame man and not really seeing the significance of this. Even from the Old Testament, the prophecies would be that in the coming kingdom that the Messiah would establish to rule over his people in peace and justice and righteousness for a thousand years, that he would reverse some of the effects of the fall, some of the effects that sin had caused in our lives. Uh, so uh, some of the examples that were listed in the prophecies were the blind will see, uh, 
the dumb will speak, the deaf will hear, the lame will leap for joy. And so Jesus, as he was performing miracles, he didn't maintain the health care of the nation of Israel, but he demonstrated that he was the genuine Messiah in exactly these manners, fulfilling the prophecies of proving that he had the ability to provide the blessings of the millennial kingdom. So it's not surprising to us then that the Holy Spirit is empowering Peter and John as representatives of the Messiah, Jesus Christ, as those who are announcing the return of Jesus Christ as Israel repents and the setting up of the kingdom to particularly heal this man of lameness. Walk, he's commanded. Verse 7, and seizing him by the right hand, he raised him up, and immediately his feet and his ankles were strengthened. This man had been lame his entire life. That meant the muscles weren't there. They were atrophied. It meant that the tendons had never been stretched properly. It meant that this was a grade A, number one, irrefutable miracle from God himself. And Peter and John are fairly ordinary people, although disciples of Jesus Christ and apostles of the early church, but people nonetheless, only God could heal a man like this. With a leap, he stood upright and began to walk, and he entered the temple with them. And he wasn't even decorous about the way in which he was doing it. He was walking and leaping and praising God and causing a stir. All the people saw him walking and praising God, and they were taking note of him as being the one who used to sit at the beautiful gate of the temple to beg alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. So Peter took this opportunity to proclaim Jesus to them. While he was clinging to Peter and John, can you just picture this in your own eye, that Peter's trying to get the attention of the crowd to tell them the truth about Jesus and how this happened, that this man is prancing about, making a scene, and now pulling on Peter and John in great joy and amazement. While he was still clinging to Peter and John, all the people ran together to them at the so-called portico of Solomon, full of amazement. This is a, a porch uh, with pillars. It's a, it's a beautiful spot. But when Peter saw this, he replied to the people, Men of Israel, why are you amazed at this? Or why do you gaze at us as if by our own power or piety we made him well? It's not us. He says, The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified his servant Jesus. Credit goes to God through the work of Jesus Christ, not to us. But then make, Peter makes it very personal regarding the people because the people had not recognized and accepted Jesus when he'd come. In fact, the people called on the Roman authorities to crucify Jesus for what they considered to be blasphemy. And so he says, the one whom you delivered and disowned in the presence of Pilate when he decided to release him. But you disowned the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. 
In fact, if you remember the story, that's exactly how it happened. Pilate actually tried to get out of crucifying Jesus by offering them Barabbas, a person who was an insurrectionist and a thief and a murderer. Surely they wouldn't choose him, but they did. They chose a murderer over releasing Jesus. But put to death the prince of life, the one whom God raised from the dead, a fact to which we are witnesses. And on the basis of faith in his name, it's the name of Jesus which has strengthened this man whom you see and know. And the faith which comes through him has given him this perfect health in the presence of you all. God has demonstrated the salvation of his soul by publicly healing him from lameness and allowing him to walk again. His faith in Jesus Christ has forgiven him of his sins and made himself whole through the mercy and the grace of God as he exalts his son, Jesus Christ, the one that they had rejected. And Peter takes the opportunity then to drive this point home, to help them realize that they too need to repent from their sins and turn to God and confess that they need the salvation that only Jesus can bring. Verse 17, And now, brethren, I know that you acted in ignorance, just as your rulers did also. But the things which God announced beforehand by the mouth of all the prophets, that his Christ would suffer, he's thus fulfilled. Therefore, repent and return so that your sins may be wiped away. If you want God to accept you into his presence forever and ever, if you want God to forgive you of your sins, it's not what you do, it's not who you are, it's not who you know, it is a gift of God, a free gift, but it must be accepted. You must accept God's gift of salvation through the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. We should have paid for our own sins. We should die before God for our sins. But God, out of love for us, has held back that punishment and instead placed that punishment on his son, Jesus Christ. When Jesus died on the cross, he was paying for your sins and mine. And now the salvation offer comes to us. Will you stop trusting in yourself for your salvation and entrust yourself to Jesus Christ? Will you believe in him? As it describes here, will you turn around and go the other way? Embracing Jesus Christ as your personal savior? Your sins will be wiped away. And... Regarding the Jews, he offers times of refreshing that may come from the presence of the Lord, that he may send Jesus the Christ appointed from you, for you, whom heaven must receive until the period of the restoration of all things. If the nation of Israel will repent, then Jesus Christ will return and set up his kingdom to rule over them for a thousand years. In the future, for us, there will be a seven-year period of tribulation 
in which God will motivate Israel to repent. And at the end of that period, they will cry out to Jesus as their Messiah and call on him to come and rescue them. And he will. And he will set up his kingdom. And even here, Peter repeats this offer and calls on them. Repent, turn, and times of refreshing will come. Drop down to chapter 4 now. Because Peter and John have just gotten themselves in all kinds of trouble that they don't even realize. (laughs) They said they were witnesses of Jesus Christ's resurrection. And they offered salvation in the name of Jesus Christ. And to make matters worse, (laughs) you wouldn't think this would be true, but they healed a man who was lame. Chapter 4, verse 1. As they were speaking to the people, the priests... And the, camp, the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came up to them, being greatly disturbed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. That's their sin. That's their crime. That they were testifying that we are witnesses that Jesus Christ did not stay in that tomb, but he died resurrected on the third day, and is alive even now, having returned to the Father. And the power that we had to, res- to, to give the ability to walk to that lame man came from Jesus himself. They were furious at them. They laid hands on them and put them in jail until the next day, for it was already evening. I have friends who are police officers, and they tell me they know exactly when to arrest people. Wouldn't you love to arrest people right before a holiday weekend? <clears throat> Why, you couldn't even see a judge until court comes back in session. I know police officers who time the arrest just so you'd have to sit in jail through a three-day weekend before you can even see a magistrate. Well, it was getting towards evening, and they put them in jail until the next day. But many of those who'd heard the message believed, and a number of the men came to be about 5,000. And so a tremendous turning to God because of the witness of this miracle and because of the testimony of Peter. It has made its effect. There's a crowd of people now believing in Jesus Christ. And this is going to make it particularly difficult for the religious leaders. Verse 5, the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes were gathered together in Jerusalem. We're talking about the entire leadership of the Jewish nation. And Annas the high priest was there, and Caiaphas, and John, and Alexander, and all who were of high priestly descent. Rome decided to give the Jews a little bit more freedom in self-governance. They were an obstinate people and difficult to control, and they thought, well, if we just back off slightly, maybe it'll help. One of the things they did, though, to prevent them from getting too strong is they kept forcing them to change high priests. In their faith, the high priest should serve for a lifetime, but Rome kept forcing them, no, you need a different one, you need a different one. So they'd pick a son, they'd pick a nephew, they kept going down the family line. And the reason why it's mentioning so many high priests is because the Romans forced them to switch, but that doesn't mean that the old guy isn't still really the power behind the entire family. Verse 7, when they placed them in the center, 
So imagine, they've surrounded them, and they have Peter and John in the center. They began to inquire, by what power or in what name have you done this? Now, if you know anything about Peter, you're a little nervous for how this is going to go. Peter talks a big talk, but Peter can be weak. Peter brought a sword to the arrest of Jesus, but he went after not a Roman soldier, but a slave. And when he swung, tried to cut off his head, he missed and just sliced off his ear and ended up running for his life and then denying Jesus when he was recognized. And you wonder, will Peter cave? Will he crumble under the pressure? Will he stand up for what's right? What will happen to him? Well, in Luke chapter 12, Jesus had said this, When they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and authorities, do not worry about how or what you are to speak in your defense or what you are to say, for the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you are to say. Or Luke 21 says, but before all these things, they will lay their hands on you and will persecute you, delivering you to the synagogues and the prisons, bringing you before kings and governors for my name's sake. It will lead to an opportunity for your testimony. So make up your minds not to prepare beforehand to defend yourselves, for I'll give you utterance and wisdom, which none of your opponents will be able to resist or refute. I had the news on this morning when I was getting ready and Trump was making fun of Hillary because she was reading from a teleprompter. She had decided to attack him and was making fun of him, even making fun of his hair. And he immediately responded back, you can't even talk without reading from a teleprompter. You don't know what to say. The way you're telling your jokes, they don't even come across because there's not even any emotion in them. Isn't it interesting that Jesus says, don't trust in yourself in situations like this. Don't plan in advance what you're going to say. You're not even strong enough to handle this. I'm going to have to empower you by the Holy Spirit. But if you trust in me and are filled with my spirit, my spirit will empower you, will strengthen you, will give you the words to say. And that's exactly what was wrong with Peter before. That's why he crumbled before, because he was relying on his own strength and he was fearing for his own life. And he gave up on himself. And it was Jesus who had to hunt him down and recommission him to be a leader among the people of the early church. So there's the question with all the religious leaders surrounding Peter and John, they're in the middle. They ask, what do you think you were doing? Nobody's allowed to act without our authority. You can't do anything unless we say so. By what power or in what name have you done this? Verse 8, then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers and elders, 
of the people. If we are on trial today for a benefit done to a sick man, as to how this man has been made well, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ the Nazarene, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by this name, this man stands here before you in good health. He is the stone which was rejected by you, the builders, but which became the chief cornerstone. Quoting from Psalm 118. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. I love it. I absolutely love it. But we don't give Peter credit for this, although it's Peter's mouth that's moving and it's Peter's voice you're hearing, and it is Peter's personality. But the empowerment for this, yea, even the words are coming from the Holy Spirit within him in control. So many of us would say regarding issues of civil disobedience and issues of being imprisoned for our faith and issues of being commanded, you can't do that. So many of us would just say like, well, I'll crumble. Well, I, I could never stand up for that. I couldn't go to jail for my faith. I wouldn't go to jail for my faith. Well, that, I, I couldn't handle it. Well, the answer is not how we feel in our own strength. The answer is not whether we feel strong. The answer is whether the Holy Spirit will empower us to say what needs to be said and to stand up for what is true. That's the beauty of this. It's not how strong we are. It's not how important we feel amongst ourselves. It's, it's whether God leads us to say these words. It's God on whom we cast ourselves as a desire to please him. The university where I serve has been commanded by the American government to purchase and provide insurance for employees of the university that includes coverage for abortions and for the morning after pill. The university has decided that it believes uh, that that is immoral, uh, that that is murder of unborn children, and it refuses to purchase and provide insurance for its employees that provides uh, that kind of care. So far, it has not been forced to do so because it has sued the American government saying that it should not, by religious belief, be forced to violate its religious beliefs. And it's become increasingly difficult. The university offers Blue Shield, it offers Kaiser, and so far it's been able to work deals with each of these, but it's becoming increasingly difficult under pressure from the American government. That the university has pledged even if we have to drop out of purchasing insurance and self-insure, we will do it. 
because we refuse to violate our consciences and refuse to violate our religious beliefs at the command of the government regarding abortion. Now, isn't it interesting how sometimes we take stands and sometimes we don't? Sometimes we believe there's a cause that is worth fighting, and sometimes we say, well, let's just go along. How do we know the difference? How can we tell when to stand up and when to just do our jobs or just go along? I would suggest to us it's by the leading of the Spirit. Peter and John did what was right, but when they were hauled before the authorities, when they were imprisoned, when they were surrounded by them and asked, by whose authority do you do this? They call upon the Holy Spirit and they ask. And they say, what would you have me say? This is how we should live our lives in all of these controversies. This is how we should ask God, what would you have me do in this situation? So often we fret in advance when Jesus specifically said, don't fret in advance. I tell you, they're going to persecute you. I tell you, they're going to try to stop you. But don't fret. Trust me. Allow me to empower you to say what I want you to say in that moment. Look at verse 13. Now, as they observed the confidence of Peter and John, I love that. They seemed so calm, so peaceful, so at ease. How is that possible? Have you ever been in a very stressful situation and having to speak publicly? Did your throat dry up? Did your voice warble? Uh, did you have chills running up and down your back? Were there drips of sweat dropping down your back just out of fear of the whole situation? I mean, there is no more common psychological fear than public speaking. How much more so when your life is on the line? And yet, the reason why they have so much confidence and peace and rest is because they're empowered by the Holy Spirit. And it's affecting their accusers. Their accusers are looking at them because they wanted to put fear into them. But they observed their confidence. They also remembered that they were uneducated, untrained men. What they mean by this is they had not professionally studied under the rabbis uh, to learn the law in detail. Uh, Peter was a commercial fisherman, uh, for example. Uh, John was one who helped in the fishing business. They understood they were uneducated, untrained, and they were amazed and began to recognize them as having been with Jesus. And seeing the man who'd been healed standing with them, they had nothing to say in reply. In other words, how do we disprove that a great A number one miracle has taken place? Why, we all know this man. We've known him for years. He really was lame, and he really is walking. We can't deny that this took place. And we thought we'd scare Peter and John into not talking this way anymore, but they don't look scared at all. 
We don't know what to say, so let's take a conference. <laughs> uh, we, we need to talk to each other about this. Uh, we need a recess. Verse 15, when they'd ordered them to leave the council, they began to confer with one another, saying, what shall we do with these men? For the fact that a noteworthy miracle has taken place through them is apparent to all who live in Jerusalem. We can't deny it. But so that it will not spread any further among the people, let us warn them to speak no longer to any man in his name. In other words, they're deciding, well, we can't go too hard on them. Why, for goodness sakes, the people like them. But we can't let them continue to talk, so let's command them not to talk. So in verse 18, when they summoned them back into the room, they said to them, we command you not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. Command. You must never speak or teach in the name of Jesus again. What are you going to do with that? Is it being an anarchist to disobey? Is it civil disobedience in the sense of Martin Luther King Jr. to disobey? Should they conform because the religious leaders who have authority regarding religious things among the people have commanded them? And you wonder, what will their response be? I tell you, it's the same response that is coming from the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. And so often when we say to ourselves, well, I don't know what I would do. What could I possibly have done in such a situation? Should I speak or should I not speak? What should I say? Do what Jesus asked his disciples to do and call upon the leading of the Spirit to ask them what to do. Peter and John answered and said to them, whether it's right in the sight of God to give heed to you rather than to God, you be the judge. But I'll tell you what we're going to do. We cannot stop speaking about what we have seen and heard. The problem is we're witnesses. We saw it with our own eyes. We actually handled the living Jesus. We know whereof we speak. So if you try to tell us he's not alive, we can't agree with you. We'd have to say, but we are witnesses of him being alive. And he's changed us. Why? Just look at us. We're not afraid of you. We're empowered witnesses of Jesus Christ. We will not stop speaking the truth about what we have seen and heard. What I find particularly interesting is the religious leaders feel trapped by the miracle man standing right over there who proves that God has empowered Peter and John to heal them. My middle son, uh, Robbie, was uh, born with a coarctation. Uh, it's a narrowing of the artery uh, that leads out of the heart. Uh, we discovered it when we took him for his uh, checkup when he was about two weeks old. Uh, the, the doctor, the pediatrician, uh, found that in his torso, there was high blood pressure. In his 
extremities, there was no blood pressure at all. He sent us to the best uh, pediatric heart surgeon uh, in the state of Texas down at Children's Hospital in Dallas. And we went to see him. Uh, they did scans of his heart. They could actually see it on the monitor, the narrowing of the artery. And we said, well, what will happen? And they said, well, we'll have to cut that out. And we said, now? And he says, no, uh, he needs to wait until he's a little older. We'll wait till he's about nine years of age. And we said, well, how is he going to function? He said, well, he'll run and try to play with the other boys, but he'll just fall down. The blood will not be able to circulate enough for his limbs to function well, uh, but he'll get better after we do the surgery. And he said, come back in six months. And we said, well, we're Christians, and we're going to pray, and we're going to ask everyone we know who's a Christian to pray with us. So we asked our Christian friends in Dallas, we asked our Christian friends back here in Southern California, and we prayed and asked for God to heal. Came back for the six-month appointment, and they couldn't find the coarctation. And the surgeon was irritated. And he was disappointed he didn't get to do a surgery. He called us into his office and, and said, well, I never need to see you guys again. And, and I said, God healed him. We prayed. And God healed him. Remember I told you we were going to ask God to heal him? He healed him. He said, well, there's some things in medicine that we don't know how it happens or how to explain them. But it doesn't mean that God healed him. And I said, do you remember I said we were going to ask God to pray? I, I asked you, does this ever go away? He said, no. And I said, well, then how did it go away? It's an answer to prayer. Let me shoot us out of his office. <laughs> When God works in our lives, and I tell you that each one of us could tell story after story after story of how God has worked in our lives and how God has blessed us, how God has changed us, how God has given us life and encouragement. We can tell story after story of the ministries of God in our lives. We quiet critics because they look at real change and say, I have no explanation for that. I don't know what to do about that. So the religious leaders, after commanding them not to speak and hearing them say, we can't stop speaking what we've seen and heard. Verse 21, they just threaten them further and let them go, finding no basis on which to punish them. And then it says, on account of the people, because they were all glorifying God for what happened. For the man was more than 40 years old on whom this miracle of healing had been performed. Brothers and sisters, God is able to protect us when we speak up for him. And we should call upon the Holy Spirit's ministry in our lives to guide us when we fall into these questions of what do I do, what do I say, how do I stand up for my faith in an increasingly antagonistic society that is removing more and more of my rights to speak the truth as it's taught to us in the scripture. Would you pray with me? Father, we would ask then, on behalf of the story we have just read, 
that you would help us to be like a Peter and John, willing to speak forthrightly about the truth that we have learned from our Savior Jesus Christ. We thank you that the offer is still open, that when he offers us salvation, we can freely respond. You've asked us to stop trusting in ourselves and instead entrust ourselves to Jesus Christ and his work on the cross on our behalf. Oh, Father, may each one of us, any of us who needs to repent, repent even now. Father, thank you that you're willing to forgive our sins and to give us life with you forever. May none of us cower in fear at the truth of this, but instead bravely speak up for the truth of what you have done in our lives and what you have promised us. Give us boldness, we pray, for we ask in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.